All right, we're going to be turning our attention back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we move into this sort of closing section of the chapter. Um, the, the heading in, my, uh, in the ESV version of my, my text here uh, just has the heading, The Lord's Supper, and we're certainly going to be spending some time focusing on that particular subject or that particular doctrine But I want to begin with some kind of introductory thoughts, kind of stimulate some introductory uh, thinking around what is also a prominent theme in this particular section. I wonder uh, if you've ever thought about how easy it is, how just enormously easy it is for us to provoke or even cultivate conflict with others. We do it with a level of ease and, and just uh, almost craftiness and, and, and ability that is stunning sometimes. Or another way to think of it is that our interactions with one another as fallen creatures uh, can produce conflict before we even know it's happening oftentimes. There could be an ill-timed comment that is made. There might be a harshly spoken word that is uttered. It could be a result of even a misunderstood silence. You ever had that happen in a relationship where a word's not being spoken, the conflict is being produced or cultivated by what's not being said. A defensive overreaction Even a skewed recounting of events. How about that one? How about when we are, quote-unquote, seeking counsel from others and and we're relaying sort of what happened in a particular conversation with a friend or a family member and our skewed recounting of events to the person from whom we're seeking counsel is, is only exacerbating the potential conflict. A predetermined interpretation of someone else's words or intentions. We, we can sort of formulate a certain profile between one another. We, we sort of maybe have someone that we look at and we, we've taken little tidbits of, of observations of their interactions or their personality or, or what have you. And, and that sort of shapes up in our minds into a sort of profile and that becomes a bit of a lens through which we interpret every subsequent action or word, and quite possibly we are not necessarily interpreting those actions or those words properly or accurately. How about our impatience with immaturity that we, that we see in others, that we have in ourselves, as we bump into one another and we interact with one another? Sometimes we are provoked to conflict simply because we're at different stages of spiritual maturity of actual developmental maturity even. And we can become quickly and oftentimes extremely impatient with that kind of immaturity around us. We are inclined to conflict or at least inner turmoil, if not leading to outward conflict, simply because we have unreasonable expectations of ourselves or of other people. We carry around sort of a framework of expectations that, that whether we realize it or not, we have reinforced in our minds and we've made them almost sacred in nature such that if those expectations are not met, then it's not just that expectations weren't met, but that an inviolable, transcendent law of the universe has been broken. In other words, our reaction seems to indicate that that's, might be, that might be what we're thinking, or the place from which we're coming. How about our dependence upon convenience as a source for contention in our relationships, right? I mean, that's a big one. I know it's a big one for some of you. I I know that. (laughs) You know, I mean, we are so conditioned by all the conveniences that are just sort of part of our our modern life and, and and yet we don't even realize how dependent we have become on those conveniences, and we could actually be lashing out at someone simply because there's been an inconvenience thrust into our path that should not be in this modern age. We should not have to deal with such things, right? 
or there's an obsession with public recognition or affirmation that sometimes we can bring to the table, particularly in an assembly of God's people, community group, small group, Bible study group, whatever it might be. We can, we can, be, we can just be offended or have our feathers sort of ruffled on a persistent kind of basis because we have this latent or maybe even this overt need Maybe we haven't put our finger on it, but it's really a need that we have for some kind of public recognition. You know, notice me and tell me I'm doing good or tell me that was a great thing or whatever. And when it doesn't happen, we get offended and then that leads to all manner of potential outworkings of conflict with others. Obviously, we've talked about this at length in our study in 1 Corinthians and previous chapters, but... What happens when we elevate personal preference to a sort of a sanctified level in our minds where our preferences really become, you know, the standard that everyone else needs to operate against or within? And then, of course, there's always this challenge that we face of obscuring our own personal sin. Um, we We can be inclined to rationalize or to sort of Uh, muddle the plain, stark nature of our own sin that we're bringing to the table in a potential potential conflict. The point is, the reason why I kind of rattled off this list, and by the way, I didn't have to look it up. This this rolled off, I mean, it just rolled out of my mind like that because I'm all too familiar with how easy it is for us to provoke or even possibly cultivate conflict with others. John MacArthur, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians uh, pertaining to this particular section we're going to be studying, he says this, one of the most fearful things in the church is division because, because it is one of the first and surest signs of spiritual sickness. One of the first symptoms of worldliness and backsliding, often before it shows up in compromised doctrine or lifestyle, is dissension within a congregation. To put a, maybe a little bit of a humorous, slightly absurd, and at the same time somewhat sad slant on this, I came across a little short article called 26 Silly Things Church Members Fight Over. And this is published in 2015. I mean, some of these I read and I'm like, okay, I remember, you know, when I was a kid and I was in, you know, sort of Texas traditional Southern Baptist church, you know, and you had these kinds of you know, business meetings, you know, kerfuffles and that kind of thing, but surely not now. Well, this is 2015, so not that long ago. And this is how the article begins. He says, it began as an innocuous Twitter survey, but then it blew up. A lot of church members and leaders were eager to share thoughts about fights, schisms, and conflicts in their congregations. They were likewise eager to point out the absurdity of these issues. There were the ones we've heard often, temperature in the worship center, color of carpet, order of worship, and color of walls. The fights fights shown below, however, are a bit unusual. Indeed, most of them are downright absurd. I picked 25 of my favorites, he says. They are listed in no particular order. And he says, the parenthetical commentary is my own. He adds his own commentary to each one. So this is a list, 25 things that came as a result of him just throwing out a survey question on Twitter. People sharing, you know, these are supposedly actual conflicts that have happened in churches. Number one, an argument, this is a little bit close to home here, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. (laughs) In parentheses it says, I think I saw a verse in Scripture that indicated it is to be no more than 1.5 inches longer than the pastor's beard. Number two, a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. That's That's a serious conflict. I mean, we're talking like, I don't know how you bridge that divide. Number three. A deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. Number four, a church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. 
That's an easy one. You just do it. There's no conflict there. Number five, a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. Number six, a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. Like This is someone actually responding to a survey with that information. Number seven, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. All right. Number eight, a petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. Don't get any ideas. (laughs) Number nine, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. Now, I could get on board with that movement. I'm guessing that's probably Southern California or something. I don't know. Um, Let's see. Lost my place here. Number 10, a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was 10 cents off. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. Number 11, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. That's timely, right, what we're talking about. Number 12, business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. I mean, this is insane. That's why I was thinking this has to be like way back, like some other era. Um, uh, arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Probably ought to let Caleb and Kingsgate know about that one. <clears throat> Number 15, major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. Number 16, an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs in the church meal. And of course, you know why. <laughs> I mean, that's obvious. Number 17, an argument who... who Excuse me, an argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. We all know Betty Ann has that authority. <laughs> Number 18, a disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. Because we don't believe in luck. Number 19, a church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. It looked too much like liquor. Number 20, an argument in church over who has access to the copy machine. Number 21, some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and a split. Number 22, an argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. Welcome to the new era. And I apologize if I offended you people who are gluten-free or have the issues that you... But it's that small. I mean, come on, you can do this. You can do this. All right, uh, a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black T-shirts since black is the color of the devil. Can you imagine a person wearing a black T-shirt and bringing deviled eggs to a potluck dinner? (laughs) Number 24, a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. And number 25, an argument over whether the fake dusty plants should be removed from the podium. So there you go. And this is the thing that's this crazy about this. I mean, these were real responses by people. And I'm sure that this is probably not what they're contending with all the time, because I'm sure it was, you know, it made for, you know, a good Twitter, you know, uh, a good tweet. What, it's now X, right? What do we call it? I don't know. Good, whatever. Anyway. But the bottom line is that it's easy for us to fall into conflict, to provoke conflict, to cultivate conflict. There's so many avenues and angles that this can come from, so many things that we could sort of step into in our fallenness, in all of these things that we've already mentioned. And yet we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, 
and following, and we see once again the Apostle Paul raising this grave issue of divisions within the life of the church. So let's just pick this up. We're going to deal today with verses 17 to 22. So we'll just read that first half of this larger section together. Starting verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. With this opening phrase here in verse 17 of chapter 11, we can clearly see that Paul's picking up on what he has previously said, particularly what he he specifically said in verse 2, where he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. And then picking up in verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So there's your connection point. There is a commendation at the beginning of this chapter, starting in verse 2, for them holding on to or in some way perpetuating some of the apostolic teachings and, and church practices that had been passed on to them, even though he had to go on and provide some correction and refinement to their understanding about the roles of men and women in the life of the church, and we obviously studied that section at some length. But here, he's shifting with a sharp turn away from any form of commendation to a form or a section that's really a condemnation. It's, it's rebuke. These instructions, he says, I do not commend you. Just to be clear, let me start there. This is, this is sort of the, the context, the broad context, the, the tone now of this particular section. A sharp rebuke by Paul. And the issue that provokes his condemnation of this Corinthian church As I said before, it's not new, as we all know, it's not new, this matter of divisions. But in this particular section, what we'll see is it's an even more heinous manifestation of divisions in the life of the church. And it gets to a core problem that he identified at the beginning of the letter, this matter of divisions, if you flip back, if you, you don't have to flip back, but if you want to, go back to chapter 1 where this kind of begins. Starting in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. There it is again, same word. But that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So the divisions and the quarreling in chapter 1 were basically characterized by the Corinthians' immature preferences and their zealous loyalty to particular leaders. And we see this this playing out as the the chapter unfolds in chapter 1 and then moves on throughout chapters 1 through 4, really. And it appears... That as we look, if we, if we think back to that study, what we saw was that it seemed like the Corinthians had elevated style over substance to such a degree that they actually begin to equate style with substance in their teachers and their leaders. You see the Apostle Paul sort of responding to that, even in, in his in his own sort of biographical detail about how he came to them and when he came to them he didn't come with you know excellency of speech you know he didn't he didn't come trying to wow them with oratory which was a major problem in Corinth and so the Corinthians had this immature view of of teaching and instruction that led them to sort of think that if you could teach with a certain flair or style or rhetorical giftedness 
then that was the same thing as having substance in your instruction. And therefore, it led them to admire one teacher over another based upon stylistic preferences. It might have been theological in nature. They might have you know, perceived some you know, theological slant that they latched onto and thought was you know, more, more aligned with revelation or something like that. But really, it seems as though it centers mostly around style than anything else. And Paul immediately calls out this thinking in verse 13 with some rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he immediately says there, there's, there's nothing that should warrant this kind, of, this kind of factiousness, these kinds of divisions, these kinds of these petty, immature loyalties to these teachers. He just sort of flattens that out at, at, right at the beginning. But when you arrive at chapter 3, we actually see the Apostle Paul going after this core issue of persistent immaturity amongst the Corinthians. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, it says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So the Corinthians were manifesting this spiritual immaturity, this sort of spiritual carnality, this worldly way of thinking, this this elevation of worldly assessments of people in their ability to, to teach or to hold an audience, if you will. And he was calling that out as nothing but carnality and spiritual immaturity, and that he couldn't even approach them or instruct them as mature, but only as infants. And so Paul's appeal, if you go back and look, remember what we read in chapter 1, is that there be no divisions among you. No schisma is the word. His, his cry out to them at the very beginning of this letter is that this, this needs to be done away with, this, this schismatic behavior, these, these practices that create division. This, this, this word means to be torn apart. And so it's like he's saying, I, I want you to, be, to not be torn apart by petty strife and by quarreling and by jealousies and by content, uh, contentiousness around these things. But then here in chapter 11, we see Paul use the same word, schisma, in verse 18. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. But notice the sweeping indictment in verse 17 that precedes this reference to schisma, to divisions. Verse 17 says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because, listen to this, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So this is not just a case of petty, immature rivalries based upon loyalties to leaders. The the intensity of this rebuke, of this condemnation, is escalated to such a degree that he's even calling out the, the true nature of their coming together, that it's not for the better. The fact that you're coming together under these circumstances is not for the better, it's actually for the worse. This is, this is a devastating description of broken fellowship. When you have the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, called by Christ himself to bring the gospel to the people of Corinth, saying to that assembly, at this particular state, under these particular circumstances, it might even be better that you don't gather right now. Because it's for the worse, not for the better. This is, this is broken fellowship that the Apostle Paul is stepping into now. And, and we'll see as we continue to move forward, not just through the rest of this chapter, but actually as you move on into chapters 12 to 13 and 14, he's dealing with the same kind of fundamental issue as it works itself out in spiritual gifts in the life of the church. 
I've entitled this study, From Broken Fellowship to the Breaking of Bread, and this first section is just going to be focused on broken fellowship, verses 17 to 22, and then we'll pick up the next section when we wrap this one up, 23 to, 20, 23 to 34, and look more closely at the communion, the communion, the Lord's Supper, and all that that entails, and all that that is to symbolize, and all the ways in which it should be approached by God's people now, the overarching setting is the communion meal, as we've already said, and it's clear in the text as well. It's essentially what establishes the dominant theme of the entire section, this whole setting of the body of believers at Corinth coming together for this common practice of sharing in a communal meal that was also accompanied by the memorial meal or partaking of the bread and the cup as symbolic of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for the salvation of God's people for the, the atoning as an atoning sacrifice for sin. This is, this is sort of the broad setting that this entire section is cast against. And you see that woven in and out of this section and then, and then dealt with explicitly in the next section that we'll get to later. And, and so while this setting of the Lord's Supper is absolutely paramount for us to understand and to look at closely, uh, and, and it is part of the first section here, What I think is most prominent, what I think we see is is just flowing off the text here in this first section, is not so much some kind of emphasis or instruction on the partaking of the Lord's table, but rather it's, it's Paul's righteous indignation that he's directing against the Corinthians for their attitudes and their conduct when they gather as as the church. And it's being and, and, and the, this attitude of dissensionness and division, this heinous manifestation of, of divisions, is playing out in the context of their partaking of the Lord's table. But this first section is centered on this, this description of broken fellowship that is manifesting in major ways as they gather for communion meal. So let's look at this for a second. I want, to, I want to talk for just a few minutes from this section about some of the characteristics of broken fellowship that Paul highlights in this particular section. The first thing that you notice right there in verse 17, and we've already alluded to it, is that broken fellowship taints the entire assembly. We've talked about this from a number of different angles, and this is, this is a running theme for the Apostle Paul, the nature of sin, of conflict, of dissension in the life of the church, it's never to be seen or understood as some kind of isolated matter. Certainly there are matters of propriety and how you go about counseling and dealing with matters of conflict between brothers and sisters in the church, but persistent, unresolved conflict and the sin that has led to that unresolved conflict, the persistency in sin and unrepentant sin is not something that is isolated. It taints the entire assembly. When you come together, when you, we come together collectively as a body under these circumstances with these kinds of attitudes and actions taking place that are reflective of hearts of divisiveness, when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. I mean, you might even say that when fellowship is broken in this way, it might be better that we not come together at all under some pretense of unity. Think about why you would even come together in a room like this. At minimum, we come together and we sit this close together in this kind of space. We have to, at minimum, hold on to a pretense of unity. In other words, we couldn't come into the gathered assembly in any form and immediately go all Hatfield and McCoys on each other and start throwing chairs. Well, I mean, I mean, we could, I suppose. Actually, that might be preferable so we could identify where the contention is and get after it. But nevertheless, the point is, is that when we come together, regardless of what might be going on, there's at least a pretense of unity that's in play. That pretense of unity serves as, at minimum, a constraint keeping us from throwing chairs at one another, right? But what the Apostle Paul is saying is, that pretense is just that. And it's not for the good. It's for the worse. 
In fact, if you persist in this kind of broken fellowship, coming together under a pretense of unity, it'd be better if you just didn't even come together at all. Don't even get in the same room under that kind of pretense. Now, this is not to advocate for that as a strategy for dealing with conflict of just like ignoring each other and staying apart. That's not the point. The point is, is that when we come together, the assumption is, is that we're coming together as the body of Christ in true spiritual unity, not in, the, not in a pretense of it. And as we know, the Apostle Paul is not big on pretense. We see that over and over again in his letters, and particularly in this one. In a sense, this harkens back to chapter 5 and the leaven principle, as an example. This, this principle that teaches us that open and unrepentant sin within the church never remains isolated. Rather, it infects the entire body of believers. So if there is unrepentant dissension and division within the life of the church, the same principle applies. It it taints the entire church in one way or another, whether it's publicly known or not. It affects the entire assembly. And see, this gets to this fundamental principle that is majored upon by the Apostle Paul all throughout his epistles, but certainly in 1 Corinthians. And this is what we're called to constantly remind ourselves of. We have to understand the organic nature of the church as the spiritual body of Christ. And as we understand that, then this kind of statement by the Apostle Paul, this kind of principle that it taints everything, it taints the entire body when we have this kind of broken fellowship, it only makes sense if and when we understand the true organic nature of the spiritual body of Christ. Paul picks up on this, as you well know, in chapter 12. And this is just a portion of what he talks about, starting in verse 14. He says, "...for the body does not consist of one member, but of many." If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our, un- and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may may be no divisions, no schisma in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The Apostle Paul is trying to articulate to the Corinthians the, the organic, the true organic nature, the interdependency, of the spiritual body of Christ. And so when we gather, if there is divisions among us that are not dealt with, that are persisting, and the sin that, that, is, that is prompting that kind of dissension, if that is not dealt with and it persists, we gather together, the entire body is affected. The entire body is tainted by such a thing. We see Jesus even emphasize the urgent need for reconciliation amongst worshiping brothers in Matthew, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to, 20, to 23 to 24, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That's a similar kind of idea as it's not good that you're coming together. It's actually for the worse. You don't even need to be coming together under these kinds of circumstances. Be reconciled, he would say, and then engage in your acts of worship. This is a very prominent principle 
a, a major truth about the nature of the church. And when fellowship among believers in a local church persists, then the entire fellowship is tainted by that. The second principle that we see here is that broken fellowship fractures the entire assembly. Not only taints it, but it fractures it. Now, obviously, there's some overlapping ideas in in this, but but this kind of takes the, the idea a little bit further. Broken fellowship fractures the entire assembly. Look at verse 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So here's the, here's the sort of the next level of divisions, is that when, when fellowship among believers in a local church persists, that leads to factions, to sects, to parties developing within the life of the church. This kind of goes along with the idea of something not like this not remaining contained. I mean, we're inclined to seek allies is the point. People who are harmed in a conflict, they, they tend not to, to suffer in isolation. We tend to look for someone to console us, and in our weak moments and in our sinful inclinations, we look for someone to ally with, to, to come to our side on the matter. And this leads to these factions that he mentions here. In other words, it doesn't, just, it doesn't just sort of taint the assembly, but it leads to actual fissures and fractions, and fractures, I should say, in the life of the church that divide us into camps. It, the lines of fracture just get deepened. And get more hardened is the point. Now there's, there's an, an important tension, kind of a fascinating tension in this verse that I, I want to point out. On the one hand, Paul is understandably grieved and outraged by these divisions and these factions that have developed in the church. On the other hand, he understands the providential nature of the factions in that they serve ultimately... The Lord's purposes, as what he says here, they confirm those who are true and expose those who are not. So you have a little bit of a, I I just call it a bit of a tension here, because it's kind of like, on one hand, you would say, the Apostle Paul is appealing to them once again to have no divisions among them. And he is calling out this this divisive conduct and these actions that are centered around their conduct at the Lord's table. And he's rebuking them for it. He's not commending them. And yet he's also acknowledging that these are a providential necessity in the life of the church as well. He says, for there must be divisions. He uses this, phrase, this word day, which means a necessity or a compulsion. And actually when you look at that word particularly in the Gospels, it's used regularly uh, referring to Christ and His ministry, His mission and His ministry. One example, one example, there's many examples like this, but the Son of Man must be delivered, Luke 24, 7, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. There, this, is, this is a term of, of compulsory nature, of necessity, And as I said, it's often a divine necessity, particularly in the Gospels where it's used there. So there's this this tension here of appealing that these divisions not be, and yet this acknowledgement that ultimately the Lord does use these these divisions to prove out who is true and who is not. MacArthur, again, in his commentary says this, the paradox is that it was necessary for there to be factions in the Corinthian church in order that those who were approved may become evident among you, it says. The worldliness and fleshly disobedience of those who caused the divisions would expose and highlight the love, harmony, and spirituality of those who are approved. Approved, this word approved, refers to that which has passed a test. 
The term was used of precious metals tried in fire and proved to be pure. Church division, ungodly and sinful as it is, nevertheless is used by the Lord to prove the worth of His faithful saints. In the midst of bickering and divisiveness, they are separated out as pure gold is from the dross. Evil helps manifest good. Trouble in the church creates a situation in which true spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership can be manifested. So, if you're sitting there and thinking, okay, well, I know my role. I will help in this revealing or confirming who is true by cultivating divisions. I need you, if you have that kind of sinister, sinister twisted mind, to raise your hand. We need to know who you are. <laughs> there's just a tension in that for us a little bit. The point is, though, that there's always tension in the providential workings of God. Think of Joseph and Potiphar. Think of all kinds of situations in your life. Think of you know, the man makes his plans, but the Lord orders his steps. I mean, when you think about the providential working of God, there's always sort of a tension with our human reality and experience. And the reality for us here is that our call is to pursue unity and pursue peace within the body and in no way to accept the reality of divisions, to propagate them, or to just say, well, God will work it out or God's going to use it for his glory. No, we are to be actively pursuing peace actively going after reconciliation, actively working toward uh, resolving divisions and conflict within the life of the church. But we also understand that the Lord will use whatever divisions in the life of the church that might come about in a refining kind of way. I'll just remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. So we are called to pursue peace, and yet we can also at the same time be thankful for the way that the Lord refines His church in and through dissension and divisions. We certainly need to be thankful for that kind of care and provision. The point for us is that we want to persistently find ourselves as named among the approved and the true. We want to be peacemakers and we want to be pursuing peace and we want to be constantly repenting of any dissension we sow or cultivate because we recognize that broken fellowship is a a grief to the Lord himself and it's dilatorious to the effectiveness of the life of the church. So, broken fellowship fractures the entire assembly. But finally, broken fellowship actually breaks communion. That's the last point here. Verses 20 to 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Listen to what Pillar New Testament commentary says about this particular section. Certainly the Corinthians imagined that they were eating the Lord's Supper when they gathered together. Paul, however, wants them and us to understand that the identity of the meal cannot be distinguished from the manner in which it is carried out. Commentary goes on, certain members were not waiting for each other, but rather some, presumably the wealthier members, were going ahead before The others arrived and satiating themselves with food and drink while others ended up getting little or nothing. This is a common complaint in other dinner parties in the Roman world. In many cases, the seating of the guests and the distribution of the food were orchestrated in such a way as to reflect the social pecking order as perceived or imposed by the host. Ancient writers complained of being insulted by the lower quality or lesser quantity of food served to them in comparison with more highly esteemed dinner guests. It seems that the social elite of the church, who would not have been constricted by work obligations, gathered and began their meal before the arrival of the poorer members of the church who would not have had such flexibility of work schedules. Now think of this. Think of this in a first century context. Commentator goes on to say, the household slaves would have normally been expected to serve the dinner guests. 
One can only imagine what kind of dynamic might have been created when, as in Corinth, slaves were also part of the church and technically, at least, participants in the Lord's Supper as well. Now you have a serious social conflict, right? What the Corinthians were participating in could not be considered the Lord's Supper, since that supper was marked by the unity of those who had become one body in Christ, and by a recognition that the Lord who presided over that supper was the one who had given up his own prerogatives and sacrificed his own life for those who were unworthy. Indeed, the Lord to whom they belonged is the one who took the nature of a servant and died a shameful death. Consequently, the Lord's Supper must be marked by clear manifestations of unity and concern for others. And since their supper reflected none of those values, it could not rightfully be so described. So the point here is that, and this is what the Apostle Paul is saying, when you come together and you take communion and there is persistent division and dissension in the life of the church or in your own heart, in your own relationships, you're not partaking of the Lord's Supper. You can take the elements but you're not participating in the communion of the saints around the table. Divisions and factions in the church, this is is sort of the, the overarching point here. Divisions and factions in the church produce perfunctory, empty worship that is not worship at all. We need to have sort of the magnitude of consequence before us when we when we think that oh, this will just work itself out. Or we have sort of some anxiety over conflict with others or, or confronting others or whatever it might be. And so we just sort of lay low and let things kind of see if they'll, they'll just kind of take care of themselves. And yet we're talking about fellow believers who worship together. And we let these kinds of things go on and on and on. And we don't aggressively and persistently and faithfully pursue reconciliation and peace and unity in the body of Christ. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that monthly, when you guys gather around the communion table, under those kinds of conditions, you're not taking communion at all. You're participating in what is perfunctory, empty worship in that situation. Obviously, we take time at every communion to reflect on our own sin. But the only question I think we need to be confronted with right now is, in those moments of reflection and contemplation, if and when we realize or become reminded again of conflict that's unresolved with another brother or sister in Christ, do we in that moment ask the Lord's grace and forgiveness and and partake of the meal, possibly, but then immediately pursue reconciliation? Does the partaking of the meal coming before the elements of communion that are to remind us of the Lord's sacrifice on our behalf and to be a proclamation of his death until he comes, does it compel us toward reconciliation? Because if it doesn't, then we are not participating in communion. Broken fellowship breaks communion. At minimum, this can open the door even, to sanctioned worldliness within the assembly when holiness is actually the call. And this is what was happening in Corinth. When we open ourselves up to unresolved and unrepentant sin, even if it seems like it's just a conflict that hopefully will work itself out in time, but we're, we're just not, we're holding on to our position and we're not pursuing reconciliation with a brother or sister, we need to recognize that doors to other forms of worldliness can be open. And any time we as believers or collectively as an assembly begin to slip into perfunctory, empty forms of worship, then sanctioned worldliness in the life of the church is not far behind if it's not already there. This is what was going on there. There People are getting drunk. In other words, the, the, the picture that the Apostle Paul is painting here, and this is kind of another sub-point here, their, their participation in the assembly for the communion meal began to look like pagan worship scenes. Their, their, their actual uh, practices began to look no different than utterly and completely worldly forms of worship and ceremony and practice. So we come in and our hearts get closed off and, and then we just press through and we, we 
sort of say some kind of empty prayer during the moment of reflection at communion, and we, we take the elements, and we move on with our time, and then we do that again, and we move on with our time again, and we, next month comes around, and we do it again, and those seeds of, of tension and, and contentiousness and conflict or resentment continue to grow and fester, but we think it'll work out eventually. And somehow we get lulled into thinking that we can persist in that way without it having some other effect. Not just on the body, as we've already talked about, but on our need, the necessity for just sanity and interacting with people to begin to sanction or rationalize worldliness. Churches become completely empty of any form of true spiritual life when that happens. And again, as I said, we could easily begin to associate our worship with the idolatrous practices of the world around us. We're really no different than the world around us. And this is happening to churches all over the world. These points of compromise and these these pockets of conflict and dissension that people just learn to live with and live under. And yet they come into the doors of the church and they sing the songs and they take of the communion elements and they go through all the exercises that, are, that have become habit and sort of part of their communal experience of life in some kind of community. And what they don't realize is that their broken fellowship is tainting the entire assembly. It's fracturing the assembly. It's leading to empty forms of worship. It's breaking communion. So God help us. God help us to be a people who when we think of points of tension or contention between a fellow believer, that we don't just see it as something that's part of life and, you know, we need to work through it and maybe we'll work through it at some point in time, but we have a sense of urgency because we recognize that the nature of our fellowship is to be characterized by a unity that is forged by our common salvation and our common identity in Christ, who is the head of this body. And that that compels us toward reconciliation and toward breaching points of broken fellowship. Well, let's close in prayer.